I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 17th, 2017. Coming up, an interview with Dr. Embrietta Hyde, project manager of the American Gut Project, a large study of the human microbiome. Begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Only three known species go through menopause killer whales, short finned pilot whales, and humans. It's an evolutionary mystery. Why would you stop reproducing with years to go? To address this question in killer whales, scientists analyzed 43 years of data from two populations in the Northwest. In these families, sons and daughters stay with their mothers but mate in other groups. Males live about 30 years, but females keep on going, reproducing into their 30s, but they live for decades longer, sometimes as long as 100 years. That family structure means that the senior mother may give birth at the same time as one or more of her daughters. During the 43 years of study data, 525 calves were born. Of these, 161 were born during the same generation, that is, to the senior mother and one or more of her daughters. About 31% of those babies died. In these cases where the baby died, the older mother was the one likely to lose her calf before it reached 15 years. In other words, the senior mother was almost twice as likely to lose a calf as one of her daughters. There's no point in the older mother putting time and energy into a new calf that will most likely die. She'll do better in terms of her genetic legacy by not having calves of her own, but by helping her older offspring and their calves survive. Sociobiologists previously thought that human grandmothers contributed more to their long-term reproduction by helping their children's reproductive efforts. This strategy would result in early menopause. The ORCA study suggests that intergenerational conflict for resources may play a role also. A new question looms for human studies. This study was published last week in Current Biology. And tonight at the Boulder Bookstore, Astrobiologist David Grimspoon will speak about and sign his new book, Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future. In his book, Grimspoon suggests that our present moment is not only one of peril, but also great potential, especially when viewed from a 10,000-year perspective. The event starts at 7.30 tonight. Visit the Boulder Bookstore website for more details. Bacteria. Bacteria. Look, bacteria. 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 You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. The American Gut Project is the largest crowdsourced project ever. To date, over 80,000 participants have contributed fecal, skin, or oral samples. The ambitious goal of the project is to characterize the microbiomes of as many individuals as possible to identify the diverse species living in and on us, and also to identify the effects they may have on us. Last week, I spoke with Dr. Embrietta Hyde, project manager of the Gut Project, about results and progress. 
This is KGNU's Science Show, How on Earth, and I'm speaking with Dr. Embrietta Hyde. She's the project manager for the American Gut Project. And if you're like me, you had never heard of that until um, just now, perhaps. So, Embrietta, can you start by telling us what the Gut Project is? Yeah, so American Gut is actually a citizen science project, and it's also crowdfunded as well. So what that means is that basically it's the people's project. The people provide samples to us, and I also fund the project, so we don't rely on government funding. It really is truly a crowdsourced citizen science project. And the reason why we started this project, um, you know, back in 2012, the first human microbiome project papers were published. It kind of opened up more questions than they answered. And in order to really determine what the human microbiome is like, you need to sample a lot of people from everywhere, uh, all around the world, not just, you know, um, really... Uh, specific pockets geographically. And so we open this up um, to the layperson to help us build basically this data set of microbiome sequences and associated metadata. And the great thing about the project is that it's completely open. And so any researcher who wants to access the data that's be identified uh, for their own studies can do so. And so we really see it as a resource for the greater community to push human microbiome research forward. So before we start talking about the uses of the data set, just explain why you need so many samples. Yeah, people are really difficult to study because we're really genetically dis- different from one another. I mean, when you use animals for animal model studies, they're very genetically similar, so you remove that source of variability. Um, humans don't have that, so there's a lot of background noise that you have to deal with just due to that. Plus, we have a wide variety of diets and the places that we live, different environments that we're exposed to, so there's a lot of input that can add noise when you're trying to find, let's say, a difference in healthy people versus people with IBD, for example. Um, So numbers are really important just to get beyond that noise. And I know when uh, you get the samples, you also collect a lot of collateral information about people's diets and lifestyles. So you can um, not necessarily control, but you can factor in those things like diet and maybe um, conditions like IBD or Crohn's disease. But is there any way you have of factoring in genetic variation? Not currently, although I'm really glad that you asked that question because there is an organization um, based out of Boston. They are called Open Humans, and I think the best way to describe them is kind of like a Facebook page for citizen scientists. You can join their uh, page, and if you have American Gut Data, if you have 23andMe data or Ancestry DNA, Fitbit data, and a number of other different types of data, you can link your data on that page and then make it available to researchers if you want to. Um, and so Open Humans does allow people to upload their American gut data, um, as well as data from a, diff- a couple of other different microbiome sources, as well as their ancestry data. So that includes the human genome data. And so in theory, uh, one could access the public data and see if there's connections between the human genome and the microbiome. Um, We haven't done it yet, but I think it would be a really ripe area for discovery, and I hope somebody does it soon. Oh, that's fantastic. I hadn't realized that. Okay, so back to the gut project. So (laughs) tell us what happens when, and this gives a whole new meaning to the poo sticks term that (laughs) I learned as a kid. And um, so when the poo sticks arrive in your lab, what happens? Yeah, so what happens, everything is barcoded, and so um, that's, like, key for us for keeping track, and it also keeps things de-identified. So at that point, you know, it's not associated with 
a name. It's just associated with a barcode. And we scan the barcode, and then the, it will tell us, yep, this person, they did consign their consent form, so it's okay. You can work with it. And then everything we do is on a high-throughput basis. And so there's a company called Mobio who uh, recently um, was purchased by Kyogen. So uh, I guess officially it's Kyogen now, but they create these kits called DNA extraction kits. And you have plates, and there's 96 wells in each of these plates. So basically when a sample comes in, we clip off the Q-tip head into one of these plates. And then when the plate is full, we put it on a liquid handling robot which will then add all of the buffers and extraction materials in to get the DNA out. Um, and that's all done on the robot, so you remove, like, the human error and contamination issue. Then once you have the DNA, it goes on to a different robot um, for the PCR step. And PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. Basically, it's a way to target an area of the genome that you're interested in and amplify it to a huge amount so that you can sequence it. And so we're targeting the bacterial 16S gene. It's a really great gene for um, taxonomic uh, differentiation. So all bacteria have this gene. So you can get it from every bacteria that's in the, in the sample. But it's different enough that you can get taxonomic resolution, usually down to the genus level. Um, you can't really get species level with this gene. And I should say so that we, humans don't have that same gene. That's correct. It's a bacterial-specific gene. Um, so we amplify it. Once we get, they're called amplicons, that's what the resulting amplified DNA is. Once we get the amplicons, we send them to the sequencer, and we have a sequencing course here at UCSD, so we just walk it right over there. Um, it takes about 26 hours for the sequencing run to happen, and then we get the sequences back, and we put it through a series of quality control steps, um, and then we run it through our analysis pipeline. And what's key is that we analyze every single sample that we have every time because what we want to be able to do is allow participants to see themselves in context of the average. And so every time we get new sequences, we redo the analysis, and it's quite a lot of data. So right now it takes about eight days um, to run through the full analysis pipeline once we get the sequences back. So does that mean that you do a batch of samples and then you put them back into the data set? The data set is now bigger by whatever the number of samples that was, maybe a 96 well plate, and then you reanalyze the whole big data set? That's exactly right. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so when you analyze, what are you looking at? Yeah, so, you know, there's a basic analysis pipeline that we do uh, because there's a couple of different things that we uh, have looked at historically that are interesting to look at. So the very first thing that we have to do is just get these sequences into a workable uh, way because there's so much data. So we cluster them based on sequence identity, and those will be your taxonomic groups. And then a table is created based off of that. And using that table, you can do a number of different things. You can compare, for example how many different uh, bacterial species that you detected in, the, in uh, your sample versus other samples in the data set. You could look at the average. We also look at, you know, in space, how do samples um, look like compared to each other. So, for example, we know that stool samples look very different from skin samples and they look very different from oral samples, and that may not be so surprising but let's say you want to look just in the stool samples and see if there's different clustering patterns. Um, we can do that, too, and we look at factors like diet and antibiotic history, um, gender and BMI, things of that nature. 
is what we look at. And then we just also just look at the list. We produce a list and we say this is every single, you know, bacterial taxonomy that we found in your sample and this is the abundance that it was uh, in your sample. And then you can look at that and have an interesting list of everything that was in your sample. So you said that with your sequence data from the 16S um, genome sequence, you can get it down to the genus level. But I know Correct. that there are lots of individual species that differ among people within, say, the lactobacillus genus. And yeah. do, you, um, do you pursue it down to the species level? So there's a, there's a tech, it's an algorithm. It's called OTU clustering. It's called Operational Taxonomic Unit. And it's based on clustering sequences on identity. And so we cluster at 97% identity. And most of the time, that's about species level. So, but what happens is you can't get the taxonomy that specific. So you're dealing with a species, but you only know the genus of that species, if that makes sense. Yeah. So and, within a yeah. genus, you see different um, clusters, if you will, within that genus cluster. Exactly. And you can say right. this is species A and this is species B, but you don't know is that lactobacillus right. A or lactobacillus B. Exactly. Yep. To get to that level of resolution, you can do something called whole genome uh, sequencing. That is harder to do because typically it's just more expensive. You need to sequence deeper, and so that costs more money, but it is possible um, to do that and figure out what species are present as well. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. I'm speaking with Dr. Embrietta Hyde, project manager of the American Gut Project. She's describing this crowdsourced project to characterize the human microbiome. So when you look at individuals, I know it's it's hard to say how many species there are because it varies mm -hmm. widely, but let's say in yeah. um, sort of an average American, what's the number of species you'd expect to see? Right around 1,000, I think it's pretty typical for the gut. Um, different body sites will have less. Skin is a very low biomass um, body site compared to the gut, and mouth is kind of somewhere in between. Okay, and are you seeing with the analysis that you've been able to do so far, are you seeing that there are specific species clusters or genus clusters that uh, correlate with specific conditions like vegetarianism or mm -hmm. uh, inflammatory bowel or something like that? You know, there's been a lot of really elegant work done, not just from us, but others in the field looking at IBD. It's a very hot topic. Um, and there is a group uh, that has created something called a dysbiosis index, and it was based on very specific uh, taxonomic groups that were higher in IBD individuals compared to non. Um, and, you know, I don't remember off the top of my head which ones those were, to be honest, but I think, you know, E. coli has been one that in a couple of different uh, contexts has been noted to be increased in IBD. Um, but that's exactly the question that we're trying to get at with American gut because most of these studies uh, have been done in U.S. populations, and it's going to be very important to do these studies in populations elsewhere to see if there really is a common signature. Let's say you live in England and you have IBD. Is the same taxonomic change happening to you as would be happening in the U.S., or is it different, and do we need to... Um, characterize those separately. And that's exactly why we're trying to um, 
what we're trying to do with American Gut, basically get people from all over the world so we can see if the changes are the same in a disease state, depending on where you live. And are you getting a lot of samples from people from different parts of the world? Like I saw on your website that you can, you're soliciting support for getting African samples, for instance. Yeah, so that's one thing that's been a, a little bit of a challenge, especially with a project that is crowdfunded, um, because not everybody is as familiar with the concept of crowdfunding science. And, you know, in different parts of the world, not everybody is able to afford a crowdfunded project, and we are very sensitive to that, and we are aware of that, and we're trying to figure out ways to address that. We've also um, established local collection sites in a number of different areas to try to make it easier for people in other areas of the world to participate in the project. So we do have a site in the UK that's called the British Gut Project. It's um, a sub-project of American Gut, and we have now, I think it's pretty close to 3,000 samples from the UK in the data set. And we do see some very interesting uh, preliminary differences between the U.S. and the U.K. population. Um, they're two westernized nations, but we do see that the diversity of the microbial community in the U.K. samples is higher than the U.S. And when we compare the African samples, like the Haza populations, hunter-gatherers, non-westernized uh, people who haven't even really been exposed to westernized cultures, we also see that they're... Uh, gut microbiome diversity is higher compared to westernized nations. So we are seeing some of these differences, um, but we certainly want to broaden our reach. We have about 39 countries represented in the data set, but most of those you just have a handful of samples. And that's really too low to find any significant differences. Right. So that said, <laughs> would you like to speculate a little bit on the basis of some of the differences? Like I can see, for instance, that you know, two people in the same household would probably have, especially if they're genetically related, would probably have pretty similar microbiomes because they have the same environment and presumably are eating similar diets. But within the same community, you'll see differences. And do you think that the differences are more likely due to diet or um, general environment? Like maybe a certain species that's found in Africa just isn't found in the U.S. Um, or other factors as well. You know, I think it's actually all of the above. Um, diet certainly is one of the strongest factors affecting the microbiome. It has a huge effect, and, it, you know, short-term diet changes have an immediate effect as well on the microbiome. But if you want to think about it a little deeper, one of the examples that I always like to bring up um, that I think sometimes we're not so conscious about, but what is in your food? An apple in the U.S. may be different than an apple in the U.K., or a piece of chicken in the U.S. might be different than a piece of chicken in the U.K., and that's just because the regulations surrounding use of antibiotics in agriculture are different in Europe than the U.S., and we know that antibiotics have a huge effect on the microbiome. So really there are a lot of different things, if you start to think about it, that could be responsible for geographic differences, and food is certainly one of them. Uh, just environmental exposures, like you mentioned, is another one, um, but just even sub-factors as well. Uh, play can potentially play a huge role. It's really complex. <laughs> yeah, so it, it makes sense that you would need a really large data set. Yeah. And so when when people like me, for instance, get my sample results back, um, mm -hmm. is is there enough research that's been done so that I can look at the list of species in my bi microbiome and say, oh, I don't want to have that one there. Maybe I should <laughs> eat something different. That's also a really great question. 
And I'm glad you brought that up because I think this brings us a, a little bit into the realm of the concept of personalized medicine, which is we're all really different and we all have different starting microbiomes. And so there are certainly general things that we know to be true. For example, we know that fiber is very good for the microbiome. It promotes the production of short-chain fatty acids by uh, members of the gut microbiome. And short-chain fatty acids are really good for um, intestinal cell uh, so healthy, you know, keep those tight junctions tight and they keep the intestinal tract healthy. But if you're looking at very specific species, for example, one lactobacillus species may actually be very beneficial for one person but not for the other. And there's a study that I like to bring up that really uh, elegantly highlights this and it was published a little over a year ago now out of Dr. Aaron Segal's lab in Israel. And what they were trying to do there was... Um, basically characterize the microbiomes of 800 diabetic patients and then based on their starting microbiome, uh, create an algorithm that would predict a diet for each person that would either control their blood sugar levels or not. And so they did the microbiome profiling, they created the algorithm, they did the predictions, and they had really great results. Um, basically, in pretty much all cases, the diets that were predicted to control blood sugar did, and they were very different. For everyone, but what they found is that despite the fact that they had different starting microbiomes and that diets were really different, um, the phenotypic changes were the same uh, across everybody. So it was really a fantastic result. Now this, you know, was done in a very specific population in Israel, but it laid the groundwork for doing similar. Uh, studies in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world. So does that mean when you refer to the phenotypic results that? Each set of bacteria corresponded to the different dietary treatments? Uh, no. What I mean by that is the uh, the host phenotype effect, which would be the control of blood, uh, mm. the blood sugar levels. Yep. Okay. Okay. So really, it would be tough to do that on yourself, that kind of it experiment. It would be tough, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, you can see general patterns. Like we know that there are certain bacteria associated with different dietary components, Prevotella, is one genus of bacteria that is often present when you eat a lot of grains. It's also very high in athletes. Um, and, you know, you could hypothesize that maybe it's high in athletes because athletes like to carb load. Um, so they're eating a lot, of, a lot of grains, you know, a lot of pasta and a lot of pizza. Um, so you can see, you know, general trends like that. And like I said, you know, there are general rules, like fiber for the most part is good. Uh, fermented foods is another great example. In general, those are very healthy foods that you would, you know, feel safe recommending to people, but there are some subset of people that can't handle fermented foods. Actually, people who suffer from small intestinal bacterial overgrowth often have an issue with fermented foods. So again, most of the time it's okay and it's a good thing, but in some cases it's not. So it's really hard to say. It kind of depends on you and your personal history as well. Okay, so the data that people would get from you are kind of a starting point, and then like when I get my results, for instance, I can integrate it with other things that I can read about diet and other sources of variation in the microbiome. Yeah, you can certainly do that. I would definitely recommend that people do not use, you know, the results to try to do any type of diagnoses. Of course, you're free, you know, to, to research the primary literature and, and talk to people. And I would, you know, I would definitely recommend looking at the primary literature and see what the research is finding and just you know, educating yourself about what's out there. And, you know, one thing that I want to point out, too, is that on the results, we do tell people, you know, this bacteria was found in your sample, and it's rare because we don't see it a lot in the cohort. And people often ask me, what does that mean? 
And usually I say, well, I don't know, because usually uh, those rare species are things that not a lot is known about. But if we see that thing popping up, let's say we see that rare species and it seems to be happening in people with a certain disease condition, that may be the push for us to actually look into what that bacterial species is capable of doing and why it might be present in those people. So in, in a lot of cases, and I feel bad about it because, you know, most of the time I have to say, well, I don't know. We don't know much about that species. Um, but that's exactly what we're trying to fix. If we see it coming up, we can target it for future research. Well, this is so fascinating, Embrietta, but sadly we're out of time. Thank you so much for talking with us. That was Dr. Embrietta Hyde, project manager of the Gut Project, describing the goals and results of this ambitious long-term crowdsourced study of the human microbiome. And we will provide a link to their website on the How on Earth site. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and was expertly engineered, as always, by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, additional music from Jonathan Colton. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.